Welcome to Technical Roundup. We've got another episode today with another guest. We are talking to Larry Cermak. I probably should have asked how to pronounce your surname before I started recording, but here we are. Life's an adventure. Um, we've got lots of questions to ask him, some easy, some not so easy. Uh, but before we get into it, a quick thank you to the sponsor of Technical Roundup Blockfolio. Be sure to visit blockfolio.com or blockfolio.trade to check them out. And yeah, let's get straight into it. Larry, how's it going? It's going really great, guys. So I'm happy to be here. Thanks for joining us. And Duck, anything anything new or exciting on your end? Nah, life's all the same. <laughs> <laughs> right, even in a market like this. You know, it should come as no surprise in the uh, typical kind of podcast format that they ask their guests, you know, who are you? Tell us a bit about yourself and, you know, where do you come from, etc. We always try to make it a bit more interesting and add a bit of a spin so that the audience doesn't just skip this section of context. Now, when yep. it comes to your background, that in itself was a meme for some time. Like, I'm sure you remember, like, the whole when did Larry first buy Bitcoin, right? So for yeah, those on the yeah. web, it's like a legendary arc in crypto Twitter, where for some reason, uh, on the Maxi side of things, there was, this ex there was this obsession with when exactly Larry first bought Bitcoin. And so people started compiling these, like, screenshots with varying <laughs> dates and divergences and using that as a means to kind of, I suppose, discredit him. Now, my quick take on that is... If you rely on your kind of early Bitcoin purchase as a means of authority or standing in one form or another, then it should make sense that your story, you know, lines up, whatever. But for 99% of people, it doesn't really matter when you first heard of it, bought it, did whatever. It doesn't doesn't really fucking mean anything. Uh, yeah. Larry, when <laughs> when did you first buy Bitcoin? I honestly really have no fucking idea. Um, <laughs> I think, well, first I bought Bitcoin when I was in college and I was trying to, uh, I think I was trying to watch NBA and when one, one of these markets, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the, uh, the main one, I forgot what it was called. It was, it was the one that came up after, after that. Um, and so I was trying to just test it out and I bought some, I believe it was Coinbase or something. But it was just, just such a small amount. It's like 100% inco inconsequential of anything. Even if I held since then, I think it was like 2000, maybe 15 or something. I really have more, maybe 14. Um, but it was like 0.3 Bitcoin or something. It was nothing. And I was just trying to buy an account to watch the NBA um, and just kind of test it out. But I honestly really have no idea. I think after that like entire screenshot fiasco happened, um, I actually looked back and, and found the date when I bought it for the first time. But like you said, I, I don't think it really matters. Um, it was obviously like super out of context. So people say, oh, you know, Larry's fraud. He's he's a massive schemer. Um, that might be true. But, um, you know, in this case, it was it was just, um, you know, some people were like triggering me about something. And so I just always responded, you know, I, I don't even know why. Honestly, it, it, it's, it was like in a span of like two years. Uh, I, I don't even remember. But but anyway, you know, I didn't buy the first serious amount of Bitcoin until um probably 2019 that's when i actually got like serious exposure yeah because i was gonna say there's a sort of second leg to that arc which is for a long time uh, i mean the block still i think does disclosures as to which you know who out, out of the yep. team members who holds what and for a very long time i don't think you held anything right you were a no coiner yeah. as the term goes yeah. uh, and so another arc that's been interesting to follow is going from no coiner <laughs> to sushi, uh, sushi uh, multi-sig holder right which is like a bit of an incredible journey yeah. <laughs> in itself you getting into shit coins yield farming i think you know uh, your fiance if i'm correct trading on binance futures i mean that She's out trading me. She's yeah, out trading you. Okay. I mean, She's look, out trading me. There's a gap, right? There's a gap somewhere where you go from I'm a researcher, I don't hold any <laughs> coins, I write about them, to yeah. kind of where you are now. Is it just as cynical as you made money and you became a believer? Or how do you go from A to B? <laughs> and I suppose a third leg to that is one of the justifications you gave uh, earlier on uh, in your writing yeah. or on Twitter was that you know it helps yeah. my objectivity if I don't have yeah. exposure to these things. So are you like are you now officially less objective? How does that whole thing work? I think so. I think I'm definitely less objective. Uh, but yeah, you know, initially it was basically, so I jumped in full-time crypto like January 2017. So before everything exploded and I kind of watched, you know, Bitcoin go from 1,000 to 20,000. And, and, you know, I, the whole time I had very little money back then. I was right right out of, right out of college. Um, so I was just watching. I was like, holy fuck, like, there's no way this is sustainable. You know, this is a bubble, irregular stuff. Um, and then it just started getting crazier, you know, the ICOs and everything. And I saw the, the massive uh, uh, disillusion everywhere. And I was just like, okay, well, this is not for me. 
Um, you know, I see what it does to people when they get little exposure, they get irrational. You know, back then it was just so many idiots. Now it seems like it's getting, you know, the space is overall getting smarter and there are actually people that you can like sort of look up to. Uh, back then I, I felt like I was dumb uh, and I felt like, you know, I was too late already. And um, then, you know, I joined the block full time uh, late 2018. Uh, I started the, the job of the director of research and started building a team and, and you know, spending more time in, in like figuring out what the actual value of Bitcoin is and uh, why it's why it actually makes more sense to me uh, than it did before. Um, and I'm a, I'm a believer of, you know, the, the kind of argument that the longer the longer Bitcoin survives and longer um, it kind of functions as, as this money phenomenon, uh, uh, the unlikelier it is that it's actually going to go away. And so, you know, I think I started getting some sort of like serious FOMO when, when it was maybe like mid 2019 or something. But it still felt like, you know, the market wasn't looking good. I constantly look at data and like different indicators and I just felt like it wasn't the, the best time to get exposure. And then. The first time I actually got like real exposure was um, early last year when when the big crash came and I kind of saw you know everyone getting uh, margin called massive liquidity uh, cascade everywhere uh, and it wasn't just crypto markets and I thought you know this is my opportunity to actually get some exposure for the first time and and since that I I, I don't think I, I believe I don't believe I've sold anything I've just added to that exposure um, and I do still kind of believe that it makes me less objective. But the, the urge to kind of take the opportunity that I thought was quite big at the time uh, was bigger than my um, kind of philosophical um, urge to stay objective. So I think I'm a little bit less objective now, but I also think that in some ways actually makes me um, kind of more informed in some ways. Like me actually actively being involved in the markets, I understand way more things than I did before. And you know, back then, I, I, I don't even think I followed you two guys. I didn't follow any traders, and it kind of seems silly to me in most in most ways. And, and now I think the traders on crypto are actually one of the like best, one of the most objective, one of the best informed people because they actually have money on the line. They make decisions in, in really short periods of time, and that ends up mattering a lot in this industry. That's definitely true, yeah. I, I mean, I think I think in general... Um, it's really hard, even with the with the old coins, right? It's really hard to kind of see the old coin space for what it is if you're not trading it, because yeah. I mean it's just a wild place. And then when everything just jumps by like two x, three x, I mean if you're not exposed, you're just being gonna be like, okay, yeah, this is crazy, it makes no sense. And if you're exposed, <laughs> I mean you're gonna have to deal with your with your feelings yeah. and how everything is going and the FOMO and. Yeah, it's true. Exactly, exactly. And what's actually funny is that, like, the more uh, you know, the exposure that I got, ever since I started noticing these people that I respected before, where they're like clearly not objective in the other way. They're kind of like, you know, um, you know, this doesn't make any sense. It has to be a Ponzi. Like, there's something weird going on, and and like making weird arguments that make zero sense. Uh, so I'm I'm a little bit more sensitive to that right now. I would say, like, relatively, I think my opinion didn't actually change that much and and like participating in the markets has been incredibly fun um and you know playing with DeFi and and, and just different protocols trying out everything is really cool yeah I, I can imagine um i wonder um with with the whole DeFi stuff have you found anything that you find really really interesting there or are you just playing it for fun um I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I'm, I'm also, I'm, I'm still a relatively skeptical guy to, to everything. I'm just it's kind of my nature. Uh, but I think there's definitely merit to having permissionless finance and, you know, people having the ability to control what they do and interact with the money the way they want. I think that's an incredible par- incredibly powerful thing. And I'm kind of learning with time that, you know, that's something that's just not going to go away. And it, it would be incredibly surprising to me if this all of a sudden just dies because, you know, there's smart people getting getting exposure on the side uh, that used to be on the sidelines, and you know, DeFi in itself, um, it creates something that where there's natural demand. Like some people, you know, some Bitcoin maximalists just claim, you know, this is just because of the incentives. Uh, this is just because, you know, people are like giving away free money, free tokens. Uh, but in reality, there's actually a lot of people that have legitimate reasons to use DeFi. You know, they don't want a KYC, for example, um, or you know, they, they, yeah, they mostly just don't want to give out, give out any private information. Uh, they don't want to have any limits. Um, and these are really legitimate reasons. Uh, but then there are also a lot of downsides, like like the costs right now are 
you know, incredibly high. And it, it makes almost no sense even for me to interact with these protocols unless I have a really big reason to. And, and there's a big opportunity. Um, and then there's also the entire issue of like having everything transparently on, on the blockchain and everyone kind of seeing what you do. I mean, we, at the block, I mean, we, we have a group and then in that group, we basically, like we collect addresses of people that just end up doxing themselves. And it's like it's tens of maybe hundreds of addresses at this point. People are completely careless. Yeah. And it gives you a perfect kind of view into how they interact with the markets. It gives you a perfect view of what their net worth is. Uh, you know, you can probably like, you know, eventually they're probably going to be, um, like exposed to some serious issues. If someone knows their, their full name and where they live and then, then they know their Ethereum address, it, it's just something that I don't think is, is actually sustainable in a way. Um, so, you know, there are always positive, positives and negatives, but I think there's actually quite a, quite a lot of merit to DeFi. Um, so I, I use Uniswap quite a bit, SushiSwap from time to time as well. Uh, and then some lending protocols, um, you know, always good either to get short exposure or to lever up a little bit. Um, and then some derivatives platforms I've been playing with as well. Uh, I think those three areas are the most interesting. I think eventually what's also going to be interesting is having some sort of uncollateralized uh, loans. I mean, we're starting to see that with some protocols, but basically having a trust system based on based on the wallets uh, that you use. Uh, these areas, I think, are the most interesting areas to me. Um, and I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of issues. Yeah, you you said the a big advantage of it is kind of that you don't have to KYC. Do you think that there's going to be an issue with that, like governments getting yeah. involved and all that kind of jazz? Yeah, I think it could be, but I think the governments will figure out that there actually isn't that much they can do. I think it's going to be if it keeps growing like like it has. I absolutely believe there's going to be some intervention, and you know we're seeing the same thing with with like torrents. I think torrents are a great. Uh, comparison to what is probably coming, where you can't really fully take down the protocol, but you can take down, you know, some services that provide it, and you can you can like disin- this is this incentivize institutions to use DeFi, for example. Um, so I think a lot of that enforcement is coming. Um, that being said, I mean the, the the best thing about DeFi and and some of these protocols is that they just cannot really be taken down. Um, that once they're deployed, they exist, and um, it's just going to keep. Uh, being that way and and I think that's exciting but there's definitely going to be some enforcement I'm sure in the next couple of years we'll see some regulators say that a lot of these DeFi tokens are securities which they probably are um, and I think overall you know people are not going to like it I mean, you can you can clearly see how they make the, the terrorism claims uh, in the next couple of years uh, where someone swaps with a wallet they don't know uh, it's, it's definitely coming I just don't think that it's going to be much uh, that effective yeah so basically it's too big now, so you cannot really take it down anymore. So you're gonna have to deal with it. If well, you're yeah, going... like yeah, like you could, for example. I mean, I I obviously don't want this to happen, but I mean, you could you could like go after founders and and you know you could after go after the sushi swap multi six, which would be unfortunate. Um, and then <laughs> and then just like just like jail them or something, and, and you know discourage yeah. this stuff to happen in the future. Uh, but you can't really take down the Ethereum applications, right? Like w- once they're deployed and if there's no admin key, like for example, Uniswap or SushiSwap, or it's, it's SushiSwap, maybe it's possible. But Uniswap, it's, uh, there, it isn't. Um, and w- once that happens, it, it's done, right? So even if Hayden or my, my great friend Teo goes to prison, it's still going to function. Um, so that, that I think is powerful. Yeah, it yeah. seems like one of the ceilings for DeFi in its current form, especially while the whole um, trust factor based on just your wallet usage, et cetera, is being built out, is not having a recourse to the legal system, right? Or kind of moving outside yeah. of crypto. Because I, I suppose that's where how, you know, collateral is basically turned on its head in DeFi, right? So the reason you can get big loans with a fraction of the collateral in the quote unquote real world is because there's recourse to your real world assets uh, if, yeah, if the exactly. loan goes bad. Whereas in DeFi, at least at the moment, it seems to be really quite circular in terms of what you, you know, yep. uh, where, how you're collateralized and what you pay with, etc. Uh, so I think until that infrastructure gets built, that built out more significantly, that that's always going to be the um, Achilles heel to some extent. We see the same in trading derivatives to, to a large extent, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of how much, how margin is calculated and trading on all these uh, offshore platforms. Like the reason... In, at least in relative terms, relative to traditional markets, uh, margin and leverage is so expensive uh, is because you can't go beyond zero in your account, right? The most they can yep. do to you is just to wipe you or, you know, take all the yep. margin uh, for the trade and then 
that's it. You can't go negative where in the real world, like if you try to sign up to a broker, for example, they'll ask your national insurance number and proper KYC documentation. Right. So if you get completely wrecked, you know, you get a knock on the door. Yeah, and I, I think that will eventually come in DeFi, honestly. I, I, I think it's like sort of happening with the, with the true finance or whatever they're called, where they're already giving some loans to like Sam at, at, at FTX. Um, so I think like trust-based system of Ethereum wallets will happen at some point, but it's like years away. I mean, people don't realize, but I mean, this takes years and years to build up the trust, uh, build up insurance products on top of it. Um, it's still incredibly early, but I think uh, the, the writing is kind of on the wall and I'm, I'm very much sure that this is going to happen eventually. And then it's just going to be powerful. Uh, but you know, until then, we also have to figure out a bunch of other things like a little bit more privacy, uh, more scalability, if L2s end up working. Um, there's a lot of open questions. and um, But I, I would be incredibly surprised if, if, you know, in two years, everyone's like, oh, this, how could you believe in DeFi? It was such a dumb idea. I, I don't think it's going away. Do, with regards to the scaling issue, do you think that's going to be fixed in the next two years? <laughs> um so, so I think on the base layer, it's 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 a complete pipe dream. Like if you look at something like ETH 2.0, um, you know, people are always like, you know, this is going to be by the end of the year. And I, I've been hearing that for three years now. Uh, it seems like t- to me, from what I'm hearing, at least like two years away. And then you still face the issue of like, you know, porting everything and making sure everything still works afterwards, like actual, actually doing sharding. And it's such a difficult problem. Uh, but, you know, what's positive is that really smart people are working on it. Um, really rational people are working on it. And I think there are going to be solutions, but I'm, I'm very pessimistic it's going to happen soon. Um, when it comes to L2s, I think that's a different story. I think this year we're going to see um, some some uh, DeFi application on L2 that actually ends up working and scaling. Uh, Uniswap V3, obviously, probably working this, uh, probably launching this month, maybe next month, but likely this month. Um, and it's going to be deploying on, on, on Optimism's mainnet. Um, and then, you know, by the end of the year, I think there's going to be some progress in, um, in ZK rollups. And that I think is even more exciting. Uh, but it's, it's still relatively far away. And, and what still kind of remains to be seen is how well these things will work. Like, for example, with Optimism, you're dealing with the withdrawal window, which I believe is seven days. Uh, then you also have to port pretty much all DeFi applications into Optimism. Otherwise, it's not going to be compatible. Um, and so there's still a lot of open questions, but I think it's going the right direction. But I kind of, I, I sort of, I wouldn't be betting on the fact that Ethereum is, is, you know, flawlessly scaling within like the next couple of years. I think it's going to take longer, uh, but I think it's going to be very difficult to dethrone Ethereum as the main smart contract, smart contract um, blockchain. Nice. You kind of took away my next question there because I was about to ask, okay, do you think there's going to be any competitor uh, that's going to overtake it? But I mean, I, yeah. I, yeah. I honestly think that there's a there's a like a real chance that it will happen, but I think you know it, it's relatively small. I, I think like if you look at all the competitors right right now that are actually doing something interesting, like you know Solana for sure, Avalanche, Polkadot. Um, what they struggle with the most is actually having the native assets, and and Ethereum has a maybe three year head start there. It actually has assets that are worth trading, worth getting exposure to. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, using the bridges is it's it's always it's first of all it's expensive, but second of all, you don't have the same security guarantees, right? Like if you're trading Uniswap Uniswap's token on Avalanche, um, you still kind of you know trust that you know the security is still coming from the Ethereum blockchain. Um, so I, I I'm definitely watching them closely. I, I I'm not one of those guys that says it's impossible. I think it's it's relatively possible. But the chance is small, and it's mainly because of the network effects. Um, finding developers that actually end up developing while aligning incentives is really difficult. Like you can see in Ethereum, um, there's very little incentives to actually build on Ethereum other than uh, d- having the most users and, and having the most kind of uh, most reliable ecosystem of developers, of users. Um, and that's that's just like 50 years. And I, think, I think Solana probably has the best shot right now, mainly because of Sam and how he's pushing it. Um, and I think Avalanche, you know, sort of doing something interesting as well. Still super early, so hard to tell. Uh, but I'm not a big, uh, big believer in, in, in the Binance Smart Chain thing. And, uh, you know, they're, they're basically just making short-term trade-offs to make it as scalable and as fast as possible while not really thinking about the future. And it really works well 
right now because CZ is just speaking about it literally everywhere, feeding you know hundreds of thousands of users into it. Uh, but I don't I don't believe it's sustainable, uh, and I think it is helping Binance quite a bit because they they want to push this you know we are decentralized narrative where we are uh, we have offices everywhere in the world we don't have offices anywhere uh, that kind of bullshit. So um, so I, I'm not a big believer there, but you know I've been using it as well, which is kind of testing out, and there are definitely some cool opportunities there. But it's it seems like they're starting to go away. This actually touched on one of the sorry Don, um, just really quickly. This touched on one of the bullet points that I had early on, which is straight up says, "Why does CZ not like Larry?" Question mark. Because um, <laughs> you know th there is an interesting kind of history there to some extent, both with the yeah. block and the office reporting, and then he, I think, somewhat recently, yeah. you were supposed to interview him, and then once he found out it was you, <laughs> that sort of fell through. Uh, for those who yeah. may not be aware, um, is there any kind of uh, Larry CZ history or the block CZ history, or I suppose oh, just yeah. whatever history you want to uh, people should be aware of when it comes to? that side of things yeah there's a lot of history um cc was the first person that gave me a full-time job um he he wanted me to be the director of research at binance before i got the block offer uh late 2018 you know we had a couple of calls um he liked me a lot back then and i you know one of his uh one of his colleagues who would i guess be my boss back then um uh he I, i'm still in touch with him and he's a super cool guy um re really rational uh, really smart um, so that's how it started. I, I worked at DR before the block, uh, which was a research uh, research shop. We did a research newsletter, and CZ tried to hire me back then. Um, and after that, you know, we were still kind of uh, on. After I turned on the offer, we were still kind of uh, just talking from time to time. Uh, we actually met twice in real life: once in Seoul, once in Singapore, I believe. Um, and it really started going south when we published that uh, office story. So I would say, I, I believe, like almost two years ago at this point, uh, which claimed that uh, the Binance office in Shanghai was raided by police, which then turned out that, you know, it was like partially true, I believe, that the employee that told us kind of exaggerated in a way. Um, I wasn't really involved in that story personally. It was m mostly journalists, but obviously, you know, you kind of get dragged into it on Twitter. Um, but then, you know, some of it was true and I kind of believe, I, I kind of understand why CZ would defend against that because, you know, it probably threatened some of his business, probably threatened maybe even his family or something. I'm not really sure. Um, and then he just started like making up stuff that wasn't true and, and we knew it wasn't true. And I think I pointed it out a couple of times. He blocked me. Um, and then I just kind of, you know, after that, I was just way more, uh, aware of the things that Binance was saying that was not true. I was always like relatively close to Binance um, and not necessarily to employees, but they, you know, I knew the structure, I knew how it functions. Um, and, you know, they just make up a lot of stuff and I'm not really sure why. Like if you compare someone like CZ and, and Sam and FTX, uh, they're quite different in a lot of ways. Um, Sam, you know, they're both, they're both super profit maximalists, but, but Sam is honest. He helps out people. And CZ doesn't take criticism well, uh, and there's legitimate criticism that you know um, that you can you can talk about for Binance. Uh, there's a lot of things that they're not doing well, uh, and when you start saying that, you know, as you know, CZ is not super happy about it. Uh, and then ever since then, you know, it just kind of got to a point where, you know, I was the one kind of questioning some of the things Binance was doing, and the interview that we were supposed to have, I had some questions. I I, I sent it over to Binance like a week before they approved it. Um, and they canceled it like five minutes before the interview, which was which was nice. Um, I was I was I was ready in my Binance hoodie and ready to go at it, and uh, unfortunately got canceled. But you know that that's kind of like the summary. I think uh, I think you know CZ is, is great at executing. Um, he built a really really popular company. He understands the users. Um, he understands what users want. Uh, I think he can do a much better job, like uh, with with PR, with uh, dealing with criticism, um, and just being more re receptive to feedback. Um, that's one thing that I think Sam does sounds sounds better than CZ. Yeah. I'm I'm also blocked, so <laughs> he's blocked me. Like... That's an East and Western distinction. Is, is that at all a model that's applicable to the the difference between how Sam handles criticism and how CZ does it, or is it jurisdictional or cultural? If you have yeah, to speculate. I... That's a good question. I think it's more personality-wise. I don't think CZ handles it that well when someone criticizes him. 
Um, and honestly, it's like no surprise. Like, why would I listen to a dumb, like, you know, 27 year old kid when I build a multi billion dollar business? I would probably tell him to go fuck himself as well. Uh, so, you know, that makes sense to me. Uh, but I, I don't think it's necessarily a cultural thing. But, but I, th- I just think that Sam just has a much more healthy, ex- uh, healthier kind of um, approach to, to these things. And, and you know, one thing that people don't really know about Sam, he's been incredibly helpful to our journalists. Uh, he's been incredibly helpful to our researchers. Whenever there's a question, you know, one of the first stories we actually wanted to write about FTX was like almost a hit piece in a way. Uh, we thought that like, we got a tip from someone, I forgot what it was back then, but someone claimed that, you know, Alameda was losing a shit ton of money and FTX was a way to get out of that debt. And, it was about the OTC desk, right? I think I, yeah, 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 I remember that. Yeah, and so so there are people kind of spreading that and, you know, obviously they, they always try to use the journalists to, to spread that information. Um, so, you know, we started, uh, I remember we had one reporter on it or something and, you know, they reached out to Sam and, and Sam was incredibly helpful and like explain exactly uh, every point where we were wrong and why. Um, and that, that helps so much with like when you do journalism, right? Like I'm not a journalist myself. But I, I've been I've been on the sidelines for three years now. So I know how it functions. And if there's a negative story, uh, it really helps a lot if the person on the other side is cooperating and explains why maybe some of it is not accurate. Because there's always someone who's going to be pushing the narrative. Uh, it always will help them in some way. Um, so so journalists you know, are generally really smart, but they need help on, on a lot of things. And, and Sam does this incredibly well. CZ does this incredibly badly. Like, for example, with that Shanghai office thing, like I said, there was some truth to it. Uh, but they literally just, they looked at the story, said, you know, we, we, we're not going to give you a comment. You can go ahead and publish, something like that. Um, instead of saying, like, you know, hold on for a bit. Let's talk about this. You know, there's some things that you guys have wrong. Um, and then they can still give us no comment, right, on, just talk on, on background. And so Sam does this really well. We talked to him. And ever since then, I've personally had really great respect for him. Um, and I think a lot of our journalists and a lot of our employees do as well. Whereas with CZ, it's it's kind of like, you know, he sued journalists as well. Um, and there's just a lot of questionable things that he does that I think he, he could be fixing. Yeah. I mean, I, I've gone through the same same issues. I mean, the, only, the, the, the one thing that I did was just kind of criticizing how he kind of handled his, his Twitter stuff. Yeah. Um, and that got me blocked pretty much uh, instantly. Yeah, and I mean, exactly. it, it sucks because if you if you want to see like um, the news stuff, or if you want to stay stay on the news, basically, and you can't yeah. kind of click on his stuff, you can't. I mean, you always have to open like an incognito window window to read yeah. his stuff. It's tiresome. Speaking of yeah. blocks, yeah, very... <laughs> why was the block so unpopular initially, or at least got so much heat? Because for me initially, like I wasn't a, a huge fan of Mike's like yeah. drunk rage tweet binges or whatever those were. But like overall, I, I was like pretty satisfied with with the block's reporting, right, from the journalism point of view. Yeah. Before the research yeah. side became like uh, well developed or at the forefront. So, you know, I, I would DM you, I'd DM Frank for the most part being like reasonably supportive. Or at the very least, look, I say reasonably supportive. I didn't like explicitly assume you were operating in bad faith, which apparently yeah. means I was supportive. And maybe this had to do with the president at the time and the whole, you know, learn to code journalism type of weird Trumpist vibes. But but it's no yeah. secret that like, especially amongst the maxis, um, the, the block was like deeply unpopular and you'd get like a lot of oh, yeah. like shit on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Where do you think that came from? And is, is it better now? Or like, how has that evolved? Oh yeah, it's way better. I mean, initially really what we had to do is establish ourselves, right? Then like, I don't really believe that many people appreciate how hard it is to establish yourself as a media brand, especially in two years. It, it's incredibly hard. And, you know, it meant that we basically worked 24 seven. We were like hustling to get everything out. Uh, everyone was doing everything. So even like I was like helping with stuff that I'm not even touching right now. Um, but back then, you know, a lot of the Maximas were just upset uh, because we were covering other things outside of Bitcoin, which I think was quite unreasonable. I mean, we were like relatively fair to Bitcoin as well. Billy Dudas was a maximalist back then as well. So it made him feel very, you know, he, he just kept getting involved because it just made him feel sad that he's not part of this great group uh, anymore. Uh, but initially, it was just it was just that, that the people were just upset with our reporting. Uh, they thought some of this was like hit pieces. Uh, and and if you guys remember, we also covered a lot of the tether thing early on. 
Um, you know, what Tether basically had like relatively big issues back then. The, the peg broke. Uh, I think the largest, biggest peg break was like 15% or something. Um, and we were covering that extensively and like trying to dig some information about that. And a lot of people didn't like it. And I think, you know, I probably wouldn't like it right now either. Uh, but early on, you know, when we had pretty much zero, zero followers, uh, we were doing what we could to establish ourselves. And what it means after that is when we started establishing ourselves, we had more money to, you know, hire better journalists, hire better researchers, uh, and then start growing the organization. Um, and I think we've done that quite well. Uh, and when you compare us, co- compare the block to something like CoinDesk or Cointelegraph, um, it's just much more business oriented. And what it allows us to do is that we can charge people more money. We charge people, you know, we charge way more for ads than competitors do because our audience is much more business focused. We don't cover prices almost at all, which means that, you know, people that normally don't like that go to us. Uh, and we try not to cover stuff that people don't care about. Uh, and that that has helped a lot, but it also means that we don't get as much traffic. So you look at something like Decrypt or Coindesk, you know, 80% of their traffic goes from stupid SEO buzzwords, right? Like Bitcoin price, um, XRP price, stuff like that. We don't do any of it. Uh, but what it allows us to do is we can charge for content. So we charge for content both on the new side and on the research side. And on the research side, we charge, you know, uh, like it kind of depends client to client, but we some clients we charge like 40, 50K a year. And they're they're paying it, um, so you know it's it's clearly working, and, and we're quite happy with the progress that we made since early since the early days. Um, and I probably don't agree with everything that we've done early on, but you know it worked. Yeah, I, I actually really like that about the block the the whole not doing the clickbait kind of stuff, not doing the prices because I mean that I mean it just gets old, right? Whenever you see that, and it's I think you need to be in a space to kind of appreciate. Uh, what those kind of things like what you think about when you see it because like as a as a crypto guy if i see like these these clickbaits these prices going to the moon whatever on new sites i'm just like okay this is just shitty news yeah. right it's not something that is worth reading whereas yeah. if you're like a new guy and you see that you're like oh okay this is where i get my my info from because you have exactly. no idea and this is what you kind of are interested in so exactly yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, what a lot of people don't realize is that traffic actually doesn't mean that much. Like, what it does is that you can charge a little bit more for ads uh, on, on, like, per traffic basis. But you discourage a lot of, like, serious, serious people who are normally willing to pay a lot of money. Because when you have, like, actually people interested in these subjects on a deeper level, uh, you don't want to read about prices all the time. And, and you know, we have a lot of people that, uh, that enjoy our RSS feed because it actually has stuff that, you know, is relevant in, in most cases. Um, so, it, so it goes a long way. Um, I, I think like Coindesk and Cointelegraph are gonna realize that relatively soon is that traffic, optimizing for traffic is a big mistake. And, and it, it means that you're gonna have trouble monetizing in a couple of years. Isn't the inside joke that Coindesk is just an annual crypto conference and then a news, <laughs> a news site on the side? <laughs> yeah, basically. I'm, I'm like a little bit concerned for them because they didn't have the event last year, obviously, because of COVID this year, they can't have it either. And they're basically not charging anything at this point, right? Like they stopped running ads for a year. Um, so now they started running them again, uh, but they're just in a tough spot. It's, it's, it's like a really difficult uh, business to be in. Like monetizing media is really hard. And we're like lucky that we did it in a time where we did, or now the market is growing and we're kind of capitalizing on the new money that's entering. But like, I would never recommend anyone to start a news company or to start a research company. It's a, it's a terrible idea and you can make much more money elsewhere. Um, so, you know, doing it right now would be just incredibly silly. I was going to ask, how competitive is the, I mean, what does, because, you know, because our audience is retail, we're retail, right? But how does the yeah. crypto research space kind of look? How competitive is it? I mean, I assume it's reasonably lucrative. Is it somewhat yeah. monopolized by those few big names we know, like Delphi, Digital, you know, Masari, yeah. et cetera? Who's buying this research? Could you just maybe give us yeah. a high level overview just for oh, people absolutely. who aren't? you know, involved? Yeah, absolutely. So so right now, you, you said it exactly right. There are basically three companies that we constantly hear from clients and, and from everyone, and that's Masari, Delphi, and The Block. Um, and I would say we have uh, relatively different offerings, actually. Uh, the Block is, we're going after the enterprise clients way more than anyone else. So Delphi and, and Masari, they optimize for the crypto audience mainly. So they go after a lot of investors. 
Delphi is incredibly popular with investors, and that's mainly because they do a lot of valuation stuff. Um, they have some. They have made some really good calls. They have had some good theses on some of the investments, and, and you know, it, when it costs you like ten grand a year or something, fifteen, twenty grand, you easily justify it if you can make it back in like a couple of days in the bull market. So almost all the VCs, um, in my opinion, or at least what I'm hearing, uh, subscribe to Delphi. Makes total sense. It's a good product. Um, we go after similar audience, but we also expand for the enterprise clients. So we, we also have a ton of clients in investment banks, uh, commercial banks, uh, consultancy firms, um, you know, and, and those are the most, by far the best clients, because when you go after the VC clients, uh, usually uh, crypto VC companies like four or five people, sometimes 10, that's, you know, pushing it. Uh, we sell subscriptions on a, by, you know, for seed basis. So the more people we have, the more we can charge them. Um, so for VC companies, we end up making, you know, based on the tier, you know, up to like 20K a year, maybe. Uh, when we go after clients that just put it on their corporate card and, and they, you know, approve the, approve the expense and then they just keep rolling year after year and they pay us, you know, up to hundred grand a year. Um, it's just really, it's just a really good business to be in because they don't churn. Um, and it's very unlikely that, uh, you know, in the future that we're actually going to decrease revenue there, um, especially when the inst institutionalization of the space is happening, uh, the, the potential customer base is just increasing significantly. Um, so, you know, I, I read a lot of Masari stuff. I read a, read a lot of Delphi stuff. Uh, we're a little bit more general. So we, you know, on top of all the deep analysis that we do, which is maybe like 40, 50% of all the work that we do at this point, uh, we do uh, company uh, analysis, company deep dives, where we look at like strategies, business models, stuff like that. We look at uh, jurisdictions and, and how they regulate different things. So we do regulation analysis. We also do maps, so investment maps, portfolio maps, stuff like that. So we just have a more general offering that is more appealing to non-crypto people. And that helps us just charge them a lot more money. And, it, you know, it is definitely lucrative, uh, especially this year. Um, like January and February, we've seen obviously a record number of people that just naturally go to us and, and basically like tell us we want to we, we want to subscribe. We don't even have to beg them for money; they they just give it to us, um, and it's and it's increasing, which is which is a really good sign. Um, so so it is definitely a good business to be in, but I, I can't even imagine starting it over again right now. It, it's hard, you know, it's hard to get talent. It's hard to retain talent. The smartest people in the space. Um, are usually either investing themselves or working for some VC company where they can get a significant upside or just working for some project where you know they just get a shit ton of tokens and retire in, in a couple of months. Um, so it's hard to retain talent, but I, I think we have a pretty good formula and we've been able to and fortunate enough to attract some really great people. Does the same logic apply for why crypto news is so shit and not competitive? So like the crypto native ones tend to be really bad. I mean, we touched on it slightly with yeah. the clickbait price and just trying to generate traffic. Uh, the professional ones who've tried to offer crypto branches, like I don't know, Bloomberg crypto tends to be pretty bad, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Then like the professional yeah. news feeds, like we don't have our own kind of Bloomberg or Squawk terminal or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, does the same reasoning apply as to why it's so poorly developed or what's the kind of take on that? Yeah, I think so. It, it's well, being a journalist is it's 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 a tough profession. Like a lot of people hate on it, but it is it is really high pressure, and um, it's not for everyone. Honestly, it is difficult, especially when you're sourcing stuff that's not public. Uh, but what I'll say is, you know, we have a team of twelve full-time research analysts right now, and we barely cover everything that happens in the space. So if you throw in a, a Bloomberg journalist who's been you know doing tech journalism for four years, and you make him write Bitcoin articles. Um, it's only logical that the articles will be shit because it takes, you guys know, I mean, it takes like a couple of years to get a decent idea of what's even going on just generally. Uh, and then like understanding a depth, you have to do it full time constantly. You have to live by this stuff. Um, and you know, Bloomberg journalism, journalists are just not doing that. They have other responsibilities. Uh, they're usually not even interested in Bitcoin, same for financial times. Um, so they, they tend to take the very surfacey approach. Um, and I, I don't like it either. I think that's one thing that's that's really going well in our direction is that you can't really rely on anyone else uh, for crypto news because they're very surfacey, very skeptical, most of the time negative. Um, and you saw it with, with the F NFT coverage today. 
sold for like 60 million or something and people are saying that they, they're selling jpegs um, and it's just like stuff <laughs> like that where it, it's just unfair coverage and, and you can yeah. kind of like see why it's unfair but they'll keep doing it because they don't have people and, it, and it's impossible to to justify you know to hire like a two three person crypto only team um, and, and the talent is really sparse i mean we're we're struggling ourselves with hiring yeah, I mean, when you're saying like they're selling 50, 60 million JPEGs, uh, I mean, that's obviously going to be clicked on more than the actual story itself, right? Exactly. So exactly. It's, kind of, it's, it's, the, it's the age old or like, I think it's like it's come up in the last 10 years or so when you just, just turned into this giant machine of, okay, how do we get the most clicks? And it's uh, super frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, like whenever you optimize purely for traffic uh, or even just people to convert into articles, it, it's just really difficult. And we struggle with that on our side as well, right? Like we want to maximize the people that end up paying us money while not like really doing clickbait. Um, yeah. And it is difficult. And it, it is a problem that I think doesn't really have good solutions right now. With regards to the NFT side of things, um, what do you actually believe um, are the upsides, downsides? Do you think it's worth anything, or what's your yeah. opinion on it? Um, so I've been, first of all, I, I've been incredibly lucky to invest in Top Shot, like really early on. Uh, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big NBA fan. I, I played basketball in college. Uh, I'm six ten, which a lot of people don't know. Goodness um, me. Yeah. Uh, so I love basketball. I love NBA, and you know, I thought. When, when NBA Top Shot came out, um, you know, it was, uh, I maybe spent like 2000 bucks or something. And now it, it the, the investment has gone up significantly. So I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit biased with NBA Top Shot, uh, mainly because I think they took the right approach. I think scaling NFTs on Ethereum is impossible. Um, you know, you look at something like CryptoPunks and everyone excited, you know, yesterday, the, the massive sale is like 10 plus million uh, for one. But you know, when you actually start looking at the activity, it's 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 like one thousand people holding those, very little volume, uh, relatively illiquid. Um, but you know, it, there are people that will end up buying them. It's just it, it's not something that's for me. It's it's you kind of you have to almost like pray that you're gonna find someone who ends up buying them at this amount and then convince them that it it, it is an investment that makes sense. Uh, what makes a ton more sense for me is, is to actually have uh, some sort of NFT similar to like regular collectibles you have in real life, like Pokemon or baseball cards, where you basically build the, the value, uh, you, build, you build the kind of bottom value from actually having a lot of users using this product, a lot of users interested in trading the product. Uh, so in Topshot, you have like 300,000 users or something, which is really appealing to me because they're probably not gonna leave by tomorrow. Um, and um, you know, when, when you have something that's actually actively traded, you have a lot of users, a lot of volume, uh, that's appealing to me. And I think NFTs are going to be around for much longer. Uh, they make sense to me. Uh, the value proposition makes sense to me. Uh, but I, I'm a little bit concerned about, obviously, everyone jumping in right now. You know, a lot of celebrities, a lot of, like, really bad artists trying to monetize. And it just creates a lot of inflation of these, like, art pieces and, and other stuff. Uh, that will never be worth anything, and I, I think there's a, there's definitely mania going on. Um, so I so I don't think it's it's going to necessarily be sustainable. But I think similar to to, to DeFi, it's it's not going to go away. The concept in itself makes a ton of sense. Uh, if you can hold something in a in a real form, you can hold it in a digital form. So I don't believe in the whole like save the JPEG thing, and you know you have the same exact um, product. Uh, so I'm generally optimistic. I just wouldn't invest in the really high value ones and, and kind of hope that the investment ends up paying off. So use cases yeah. will essentially accrue around um, NFTs, which people actually use, trade, uh, and well, well, yeah. I use, think so. Practically. That's, a, that's my thesis. Uh, and, and I think, you know, it, it's just interesting. Like with Top Shot, what they really nailed is, is the user experience. So I have people, my friends from high school that... I speak to from time to time. I, I've tried to like uh, get them to invest in Bitcoin for a couple of years. They hate it. You know, they hate Ethereum. They hate how you have to use MetaMask, how it's technical. But Topshot, you know, I, I saw I, I sent them the address, and, and one of my friends just, you know, basically paid off his college debt because he put in like a couple of thousand dollars back then, because it's incredibly easy to put in money. They in, implement credit cards well, uh, but they're obviously massive, massive. Uh, downsides of that which is that it's decentralized it's not decentralized uh largely not decentralized and you know you can basically get kicked off of the platform which is like kind of counterintuitive to nfts 
Um, so there are always trade-offs, but um, I'm, I'm way more positive about the ones that can actually attract uh, liquidity and attract users. Um, I'm, I'm kind of thinking of it in a similar vein where it's like you've seen Bitcoin, like in general, crypto has just bubbled over the years several times, right? And then the bubble pops and then it just chills a bit and then goes back up again. I could kind of see the same thing happen on the NFT side of things as well, where it's like, it's interesting. It's kind of getting crazy. But even yeah. if it's bubbling, it's going to be interesting after the bubble as well. It's not something that I Absolutely. think it's just going to disappear. Could you Absolutely. Is, given your friend's experience with like NBA Top Shots, as an example, um, is there an argument to be made for NFTs actually being the normie gateway to crypto as opposed to shit coins or whatever mechanisms exist at the moment? I feel Bitcoin at this price isn't like the yeah. most intuitive thing for people to get into crypto, so to speak. ETH, more or less there. DeFi, from a user experience point of view, I think is still a bit too complicated. Could uh, NFTs be that magic bullet that gets people in involved in the ecosystem? Or are we doomed to follow Elon Musk and Dogecoin tweets? <laughs> no, I, I think that's totally right. I mean, we, we saw it with CryptoKitties as well, and CryptoKitties was basically, you know, fucked over by Ethereum, not being able to scale, and then also just inflation. But I, I remember back then, um, you know, there were people like my parents were hitting me up, like saying, you know, you know, we want to buy this thing. And that was like the first time that that happened. Uh, and I think NFTs right now are doing the same exact thing, even Topshot. Like you can, I've seen many people that got hooked on Topshot just, transfer some of their money into ETH and like start playing with DeFi. It's just like a really good funnel into experimenting with this technology overall, even though, you know, um, NBA Top Show is on flow. And like I said, it's, it's like a relatively centralized blockchain, but it still attracts people to regular NFTs on, on, on Ethereum. Um, and there's a lot of people that normally would never touch cryptocurrency that normally are, you know, mostly just turned, uh, turn, turn away with, with crypto and, are getting exposure to these things. So, so I absolutely think that it is a really good way uh, to convert some people. And it's going to be interesting if, if Topshot eventually like integrates um, some third-party applications as well and, and let people actually withdraw the money frictionlessly. Right now, it's, it's a big issue. But I do think that it is a really, really good leeway into crypto. One question that That's, I... Sorry, no. go on, Don. No, I, I kind of agree because whenever you, have, when you, you gamify something, essentially you kind of get the the broad audience right and that's what nfts are in my opinion it's yeah. it's kind of how how crypto kitties work it's it's how pretty much anything in in the nft space works i think you make it a little bit more like a game yeah. or like in general just in more interesting than okay this is the the fine like the future of finance and uh, then people look into it and then move on to to other uh, actually yeah. like financial interesting kind of pieces yeah I, yeah i totally believe that and, and i think i think red mentioned this but when you try to onboard some some new person into DeFi, they almost never convert it's just so complicated it's so risky the on-ramp is, is problematic uh you spend a lot on fees it's it's impossible like i can't convince my friend who just put in you know five thousand bucks in bitcoin to start using uniswap and, and you know spend 50 bucks per swap it just makes no economic sense and also it's just still too technical um, so I think a lot has to change there to actually attract, you know, a lot of different people um, and and get actually some sort of mass adoption or whatever we want to call it. I agree. Um, one thing that's not entirely clear to me, unlike on the DeFi side. So with NFTs, and maybe this is a good question that you can answer for our audience. Um, you know, mm -hmm. let's say someone just hears this buzzword and he's like, look, the last time I heard something like this, like Ethereum ecosystem, mega moon type of thing was DeFi. And then, you know, I could get exposure via an index or like a few big players, you know, Uniswap. I just bought the Uniswap token, the most popular decks. And, you know, I did, yeah. uh, you know, I, I performed well, et cetera, et cetera. It's far less clear, at least at the time of recording, how one can get this general generalist um, exposure to NFTs from a trading or investment point of view uh, if someone came to you yeah. and said i want to quote unquote invest in nfts but i don't want to buy artwork and maybe there's some index or a passive product where do you point them towards or have you even had those sorts of questions yet yeah there really isn't a isn't a good way you're totally right um i mean there's some there's some products like nftx that's trying to create like price floor tokens where you can get some sort of general exposure through an index that tracks the price floor of the nfts there's one for crypto punks one for hash masks but I wouldn't necessarily point people there to want to get exposure to NFT. It's kind of silly. doesn't have much liquidity. Um, so I think like eventually, um, you know, for example, there can be an OpenSea token. Uh, there could be some, some like platform place that you could do. 
but I think generally it's, it's really hard to get exposure to something that's not uh, that that's non fungible. Um, so I, I think that is a real problem, and I I don't think it really has a clear solution. Um, I, I've kind of gotten exposure to some NFTs myself just by experimenting. I bought some hash masks. Uh, I bought NBA Top Shot, and um, I've tried a couple of other things. Uh, but I would just I would not generally recommend people to jump jump in too late. Like it's always just better to get early exposure and just just kind of wait with it and, and play it that way versus now like investing in really expensive nfts and hoping that they increase in value i think uh there are better ways to invest than doing that yeah it's a good answer it also means you're early right if you, if there's this part of the crypto yeah. ecosystem and you're like how do i get exposure and there's no index on ftx <laughs> you're probably a bit exactly early. yeah Exactly. I wanted to give you the opportunity, and it's also very interesting to me. I've got it open right now. Um, you wrote this very long and informative thread about kind of market structure, which is a totally different understanding to what mm -hmm. our audience will be used to. Um, but I've got it open right here, and I'll just bring it up for the screen for those watching at home. Uh, and if you're listening, I think you just type in theblockcrypto.com forward slash data. Uh, it'll take you there. And, you know, this is a very comprehensive kind of dashboard. You've got all sorts of markets. You've got on-chain, DeFi, NFTs more recently, other metrics. Mm -hmm. You can really use this to build a picture of the market. So as you'll probably yep. guess, our audience is just used to uh, price charts for the most part. I mean, we dabble yep. with other things, but for the most part, like relative value and whether the market's running hot, cold, at a turning point, mm -hmm. changes in trend, etc., will usually be inferred from uh, the technical side of things, right? right. Um, as you know, you are really bullish I remember you posted a similar thread even before the dashboard, looking at you know stablecoin volumes and all these other things when the market really was starting to take off. And you made another thread recently. So how does someone who doesn't look or pay as much heed to price charts, how do you build a picture of the market? Uh, maybe trend changes or whether it's running hot, cold. Like how how does Larry get his overview uh, with the dashboard or without? Well. Literally, the dashboard is something that I envisioned since the first day I joined. So that's literally how I get my data. I mean, everything that you can see in a dashboard, or most of it at least, is something that you know I've been thinking about for a while. And it's 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 basically what I watch almost on a daily day-to-day -day basis. Um, so so the way you know, I, there's a bunch of different ways that you can you can watch different data. And one of the problems in crypto right now is that data is incredibly incredibly uh, just spread out across different providers. So, you know, one thing I watch all the time is, is spot data. You have to watch futures data, options data. You have to watch um, on-chain data, uh, both for Ethereum, but also just generally. Um, you have to watch uh, some DeFi data. Um, and all of these are scattered across different platforms. So on the dashboard, we actually use like 15, maybe actually 20 data providers at this point uh, and just aggregate everything into one spot. So, you know, if, if you normally just look at price charts, I would definitely recommend to bookmark this thing and at least check it out like once a week just to see general trends. Uh, and what I do a lot is like watch indicators that I think are relatively important. So, so for example, I watch volume uh, quite a bit for both futures and, and spot to just see if, if the liquidity is drying up. Um, I, I watch really large inflows and outflows from exchanges. Um, I, I watch what's going on DeFi. Uh, on a really, uh, really granular basis, just kind of like seeing how much people are borrowing, how much the protocol is actually generating in revenue. Um, and it's it's a little bit silly. I mean, especially in the bull market, like fundamentals just don't matter. I mean, you know, like watching it, I've made so many mistakes just relying on fundamentals where I should have just been relying on up only and, and just <laughs> believing. Uh, so it's it's not bulletproof, but it kind of gives you a better idea of what's actually happening in the market. Uh, so, for example, you know you can you can figure out easily like which markets are the most liquid from our dashboards. Uh, you can get, then go there and when when you know instead of just watching regular charts, you can watch like uh, order book charts with heat maps, and 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 helping you with that. Uh, and then just like generally just getting a better idea of where the demand is coming from. Like for example. Usually before prices start dropping a lot, you usually see some sort of um, a fundamental shift in the data that I'm watching. Uh, most of the time, it's, it's, it's some sort of a drop either in, in on-chain transfers, inflows, outflows, uh, or just volume. Uh, sometimes you also don't. It's, it's not a bulletproof system, but just checking it, I mean, it's not going to hurt you. And you're going to get a much better you know, idea and a much better understanding of what's actually happening in the market. Um, so definitely check that out if, if you guys have some time. It's 100% it's free. We don't plan to monetize it at all. 
Uh, and if anyone has any feedback, uh, we're happy to add more charts. Uh, it's that's it's something that I'm I'm really proud of, uh, and, and I think you know more people should be using that because you can derive like actual insights from it. Uh, I remember like when I was when I first got real exposure to Bitcoin, it was based on some sort of bullshit analysis like this, and it ended up being right uh, in some way. Like a lot of indicators were just all of a sudden going up, and I was like, okay, well something's going on, uh, and it could always reverse, just like in regular charts, but. Um, it's just it's just more information that you can make your decisions on. Yeah, it can offer confidence as well, right? So I mean, yeah. I totally agree. When you're looking at the price chart, I, it's something that I've implemented more and more. An understanding of the market is okay. What what's happening in the spot markets, like you said, and I mean, it just helps kind of make informed decisions. So definitely agree. Why not take yeah. it if you get it for free? Yeah. 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 Exactly. There's no reason not to use it. Uh, it's, it's free information, and and you know you can you can use it for your Twitter threads. It usually gets quite a bit of engagement. Um, so uh, it's just something that I would pay attention to if if I was uh, your regular kind of viewer. Agreed. Yeah. Some really good stuff there. Again, the block slash data will take you there, and you've got all sorts of markets, on chain, DeFi, uh, a great place to stay up to date with everything, find confluence, even if you do trade more on the technical side of things. That's very cool. And yeah, free, which is um, great as well. Um, and lots and lots of data there. I want to ask, uh, you know, we're pro probably approaching the end and you've been incredibly generous with your time. One thing which st stuck with me that you tweeted some time ago uh, was that the talent flow to crypto is just absolutely mental right now, right? Um, the <laughs> traditional kind of investment banking work at Facebook, Google, whatever, has lost its prestige to a large extent. I mean, a bull market helps, obviously, but generally I think that that trend exists. So for anyone listening who's maybe a new entrant to the market, maybe they're looking to build or to research or to get involved in a meaningful capacity without kind of wasting their time or following scams, hype, or uh, getting licked on leverage, etc., where do you do you have any tips for them or places for them to go get involved in any pointers for um, people who really want to get involved in the space but don't want to fall for the make all the usual mistakes that I'm sure we've all made? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, generally, I, I mostly look at uh, research analyst candidates. So uh, I'm actually I don't know if I have the best advice to to send people to. I would say you know obviously get connected to companies. Almost everyone is hiring right now. Like. You know, it's it's no ex exaggeration with the talent that that's coming in right now. I'll, you know, I, I've been at the block for three years now. Initially, we had trouble to get anyone, and it was you know we we just couldn't hire really good people because no one was interested in crypto. It was the bear market. In the last three months, it has absolutely changed. It's absolutely ridiculous, and I, I normally don't really exaggerate these things, but I mean, it's absurd. How, you know how how smart people are interested in crypto right now, mostly in DeFi. Uh, like we're getting PhD candidates, you know, PhD students at Harvard, Stanford, Oxford interested in DeFi and, and you know, scoring like 95% on our uh, knowledge tests. Um, so so the talent that's coming in right now is, is absolutely absurd. I, I've said it in the, in the Twitter thread, but I would absolutely not hire myself if I was hiring right now. Um, they're way better people than I am. Um, and so, you know, to those people, I would just encourage them to get in touch with you know, a lot of these companies look at the opportunities. There's a lot of interesting job postings. Uh, obviously, most of the openings are for software engineers and and, uh, and research analysts. But if anyone, you know, who's listening wants to get involved in crypto full time, you can let me know. Uh, we've actually been really successful with our internship program. So we've built uh, we've built a knowledge test and test everyone. Uh, and based on that, we, we end up hiring at least three people every quarter. And we're getting so much down that we can't place it. So we actually are working with like 15 different firms in the ecosystem, some really prestigious ones, like including like including Paradigm, including, you know, Dragonfly, so some really good companies uh, and referring talent to them because we just have too much of it. Um, so if someone's interested, just just reach out to me on Twitter or somewhere else and I'll either refer you to some company that's hiring or, you know, we'll interview, our, interview ourselves. Um, but there's a lot of opportunities for really smart people right now. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, you, you heard it from the man. Uh, where can people find you? Where should they reach out to you? Ask you all their difficult questions. Any kind of shout outs, social media, usual stuff, Larry? Yeah. Yeah. I guess like on Twitter, I'll open my DMs. I, I usually close them because it gets fucking scary. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, Twitter is the best. Usually my email is Larry at the So if anyone wants to email me, um, I'll definitely reply there. 
you know, I guess LinkedIn, but you know, that's it's a terrible medium for everything. But I'm generally available as well uh, on pretty much all platforms. So if you want to reach out to me, just email me and you know, I'll give you my Telegram privately or something and, and we can chat. Awesome. And you'll know that if Larry asks you for two ETH before sending four back, you're probably not talking to Larry, for those of you who are very new. Um, Dark, any final questions, comments, concerns, criticisms? I think I've learned a no, lot. Uh, yeah, I, I have learned a lot as well and uh, really enjoyed it. Awesome. Larry, yeah. thank you for your time. Um, no, I really, really appreciate you guys having me on. Um, and, you know, big fan. I, even though I don't trade that much and, and don't do technical analysis, I've watched some of your videos. Um, and the interviews have been great. I, I love the honest kind of approach and asking questions that normal people don't ask, which is always good. Um, so really appreciate you guys. Uh, your Twitter accounts are great. And, yeah, um, talk later. Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, that's all from us as well. A kind thank you to Blockfolio for sponsoring Technical Roundup. Remember to visit them at blockfolio.com or blockfolio.trade. Rate this podcast, like the video, wherever you're listening. Thank you for your time, and we'll speak with you soon. Gentlemen, thank you again, and goodbye.